Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Cognitive Dissident. I'm not sure why there is such a spectrum of empathy in humankind, from those who seem to lack it entirely, to those who are close to feeling everyone's pain, but part of that spectrum can and must be reached, nurtured, and grown if possible. I have a very imperfect form of empathy myself. I see photos of smiling white people posing next to the smoldering remains of a lynched black man, and my gorge rises. And although I want to cry for him, I want much more to shoot those fucking white savages. I feel the urge for bloodletting, a biblical eye-for-an-eye response. So oddly, I lose all empathy for them, and in so doing, I become their mirror image. Obviously, this is not my higher self speaking, but a horrific, reactive rage I fall into at these times. And let's face it, lynch mobs, torturers, murderers, and those who would derive pleasure from merely witnessing such things, it's a tough road to connect to them and feel for them. And maybe I don't need to. Maybe that's the point. Maybe they're utterly beyond redemption, and I need not bother. Maybe I, we, need only connect to those who have enough humanity that they'd never, ever, now or in the past, remote or recent, countenance or stand for such barbarity. But are there such people? Am I such a person? Or is context everything? Would I have been an abolitionist or a slaver in 1850s Virginia, where my father's family, who kept slaves and fought for the Confederacy, hailed from? I fervently hope that, regardless of whatever environment I grew up in, I would have fallen on the side of empathy and kindness, but I'll never know. I do know that there is the environment of the culture at large, and then there's the environment inside the family. My parents actually wrote an anti-racist song called Listen, Mr. Bilbo, which Pete Seeger sang almost to his dying day. In truth, that has not aged well as it lionizes Christopher Columbus, but for its day, it was an anti-racist anthem. My parents were also involved in many other peace and social justice movements, as was I from childhood. And I grew up in a multiracial polyglot section of Brooklyn. In fact, my Jewish mother and wasp father had Arab tenants in the brownstone they scrimped to buy in what was then the up-and-coming neighborhood of Cobble Hill. But it was hardly a post-racial paradise. Even though I grew up playing with Arab, Black, Puerto Rican, Irish, and Italian kids, there was indeed major racism and bigotry all around me. There was a kind of firework that slithered along the ground and then exploded, which everyone called what I can only delicately allude to as a N-word chaser. Puerto Rican and Black kids were treated totally as inferiors at PS29, where I went to school. Sure, we sang Everybody Loves Saturday Night in many languages at the school pageant, but all the kids in our Dick and Jane books were white like me, and even as a child of six or seven, it was impossible to miss the double standards and how punishments were meted out by our all-white teaching staff. As noted in a previous podcast, I was also singled out for being Jewish. My unwilling nickname on the street was JB, an abbreviation of Jew Boy. I was jeered at as a Christ killer by all the Catholic kids who went to St. Paul's Church around the corner, and pretty mercilessly beaten up by many of them, as well as various Arab, Irish, Black, Italian, and Puerto Rican kids. But I didn't grow up hating Blacks and Arabs, Puerto Ricans, Irish, and Italians. 
Why is that? Was it the dominance of my family's internalized hatred of all forms of bigotry? Certainly that's part of the story, though certainly not all kids grow up believing what their parents believe. I think there's more to it than that. I think I learned to empathize with my neighbors because I knew them from birth and because of some key events in my childhood. The most memorable happened when I was quite young, in 1967, yet I still remember it well. It was during the Six-Day War. The Syrian ambassador had come to our neighborhood and given a speech right on Atlantic Avenue, basically calling, in not-so-veiled language, for Jews to be killed in the streets. My mother, who possessed no boundaries at all, explained what was happening and why she was terrified, terrifying me in turn. I can't blame her completely. It was only 21 years since the end of World War II. The Holocaust was not some distant memory for her at all. In terms of stereotypes, though, it's pretty funny. Her codependent oversharing of her internal anxieties with her seven-year-old son almost rates a merit badge in neurotic Jewish mothering. During the summer of 1967, we were renovating our house, or actually demolishing a lot of it before the renovators came. My stepfather gave me a hammer and let me break all the plaster and laughing out of the walls. I loved it. What seven-year-old boy wouldn't enjoy causing such mayhem? But it was also long, hard work, and we worked for weeks. There was a door in the fence between our backyard and the backyard of our Syrian neighbors, the Kershys. It was always unlocked. One night during that short war, we came downstairs, filthy with plaster dust and exhausted, only to find the entire Kershey family in our tiny apartment, with a table set with massive amounts of food. They'd even taken some of the grape leaves off our grape arbor and made delicious homemade stuffed grape leaves out of them, filling them with lamb, rice, onions, pine nuts, and delicate spices. They'd cooked all day and snuck in through our back door, and the entire clan was there, smiling broadly at us. The patriarch of the family, Mike Kershey, said, Let them fight over there. Here we break bread together. And we did. We were friends and neighbors, and our ethno-religious backgrounds simply didn't matter. To this day, this memory still causes my heart to overflow and my eyes to tear up. The true ruler of the Kershey family was Mike's mother, Nina Kershey, who was an enormously fat, old, and jolly woman who sat out in front of their brownstone on nice days, smoking a hookah while engaging in gossip and banter with passing neighbors. I adored Nina, and she often sent me on errands up to the amazing Arab bakeries and grocery stores on Atlantic Avenue to fetch lamb and spinach pies, multicolored olives, exotic spices, sesame-encrusted pita bread, a rare form of baklava made of cashews, and other delicacies. She always gave me some, of course, and I often sat at her side listening to her lovely sing-song broken English as she described her childhood in Syria to me. So early in life, exposed to terrible Arab bullies and Arab best friends and wonderful, loving Arab neighbors, I got the message that you had to get to know people before you judged them. Somehow between the Kershys and my first best friend, Freddie Howitt, a Lebanese kid whom I befriended before I could walk because he lived in our brownstone with his family, and all of the multi-ethnic kids I eventually ended up getting beaten up by, but also ended up playing ring alivio and stoop and stickball with, and perhaps also because of my parents' own moral code, I learned that people had to be judged as individuals, not as members of a clan or tribe or creed or ethnicity. 
That has translated to friends of all ethnicities and religions and sexual orientations throughout my life. But clearly living cheek by jowl with one's neighbors is not enough. If it was, the Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, Arabs and Israelis, Han Chinese and Uyghurs would all get along just fine. But by the same token, I think it can be a start to empathy under the right circumstances. Food sharing is one. I'd love to see a national food sharing holiday, or at least food sharing days in every school where people bring in their favorite foods from their culture and pass them around, or even teach the class how to prepare them. Since not everyone has the money to feed an entire class, perhaps schools could even fund these feasts. That is, if this country actually gave most of its schools enough money. But the intellectual ground must also be tilled for the seeds of tolerance and acceptance of the other to have a chance to germinate. Which is why the long-term solution to book banning and historical censorship and maybe even hate crimes and war might revolve around teaching three things in all schools. Nonviolent conflict resolution, critical thinking, and empathy, if empathy can be taught. The trouble is that every fundamentalist I've ever met from any religion, even the religions of white supremacy and militant misandrist feminism, is dead set against at least one of these powerful tools, that being critical thinking. Rote learning and blind adherence to their interpretation of their foundational works, be they the Bible, the Quran, or something else, even something like Mein Kampf, is demanded. I do not know how to reach such entrenched, heavily defended people. Fundamentalists of all religions and philosophies resemble each other closely. They are reflexively against any ideas or facts that challenge their worldview. They have total disdain for any education that strays from their orthodoxy. They are utterly intolerant of dissent within their clan, and basically just plain intolerant period of those outside of it, viewing those who disagree with their worldview as an existential threat. They're also incredibly common among human beings of all genders, sexual orientations, races, religions, and political persuasions. Closed-minded, clannish bigotry almost seems to be the human default. And more and more, in all walks of life, from the left as well as the right, these are the people running the show. This week, I've seen what looks like the crossing of two pendulums. On the plus side, academics are pushing back ever more vigorously and courageously at an increasingly censorious movement of umbrage-filled identity politics warriors on the nation's college and university campuses. This movement has almost exclusively emanated from the left. Craven administrators have caved into self-righteous, utterly intolerant, often hysterical and abusive students over and over, sometimes ruining the careers of longtime professors in the process. And academics and teachers are finally mobilizing in force. Quite sensibly, many are raising their voices in support of those they don't agree with, academics whose philosophies they may even despise. In other words, they're supporting principles rather than individuals or agendas, which is the only way to truly fight for justice. It turns out, of course, that if you go far enough to the left, you find people who mirror the right in their lust for the suppression of ideas they find distasteful. And as the right has moved ever rightward, this force seems to have energized its left-wing counterpart, because the left has done its damnedest in recent years to resemble the right in its absolute intolerance for real freedom of thought and expression. One of the most gobsmacking examples on the left involved black and white artists, and then only black artists after it was deemed uncool to have white artists involved, 
calling for the confiscation and destruction of a painting exhibited at the Whitney Museum's biennial. This utter craziness of artists calling for the destruction of other artists' work, which readily harkens back to the Nazi proclamations about degenerate art, will be covered in an upcoming episode. But meanwhile, as academics started digging in in earnest, resisting mostly left-wing calls for various types of censorship and punishment for those who've said things those people found disagreeable, another pendulum accelerated towards more intellectual intolerance and the enforcement of ignorance. That is, of course, the pendulum of right-wing populists, from city and state legislators, to school board members, to odious trash like Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson, contorting themselves by decrying censorship, all the while supporting censorship. Last fall, the all-white school board of the Central York School District unanimously banned a list of educational resources. That list includes a children's book about Rosa Parks, Malala Yousafzai's autobiography, CNN's Sesame Street Town Hall on racism, and much, much more. The fact that all the banned materials are by or about people of color is just a coincidence, according to the school board president. Concerns were based on the content of the resources, not the author or topic, she said in a statement. She and the rest of the school board refused to speak on camera. She says it's not a ban. The materials are frozen while the board vets them. Yes, the right wing particularly in the form of school boards, but also state legislatures and other entities, are curtailing curricula and banning books left and right. The banning of the book Mouse by Art Spiegelman hurt particularly because it's a Pulitzer Prize-winning masterpiece of the graphic novel genre that I hold dear to my heart. I guess before I go any farther, I should state my own views on censorship. I want virtually none. It's not because I think that in the marketplace of ideas, the right ideas will win out. I don't know that, and honestly, I often tend to doubt it. It's not because I think the arc of the moral universe eventually bends towards justice. I don't know that either, and given the world's recent headlong lunge into more fascism and more hate crimes, I doubt this even more. No, it's because to bastardize a riff from Winston Churchill, free speech is the worst of all systems— except for all the others. I can't think of any workable plan to censor speech. People are subjective and biased by their nature. All of us are. If a black person put up a lawn sign that said all white people are racist, that might make perfect sense to them. But I would find it offensive. So do I have the right to call for it to be removed? No. They've got the right to offend me. Hell, I'll demonstrate for their right to offend me. I simply don't trust anyone to decide what speech is okay and what speech is not, or anyone telling me what I can read, either. The term slippery slope does not even begin to describe the peril engendered by censoring even the most egregious material. How egregious, you ask? Do I think that yelling fire in a crowded theater is okay? Do I think that a pamphlet that advises white people or black people or Arabs, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, etc. to commit genocide against another group is okay? Do I think that the coded messaging on radio shows in Rwanda, which actively fomented the mass killing of almost a million ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus by the Hutu majority, was okay? Obviously not. But should these things be censored? Here I shake my head and say, I just don't know. In general, direct, unambiguous calls for violence, such as a white supremacist calling for the murder of a person of color on the street, are where I draw the line. 
But what about coded messages, like the Hutu labeling of their generally taller neighbors, the Tutsis, as tall trees that had to be cut down? The line is so damnably hard to draw. So yes, I often punt on this question. I'm not smart enough to know. I'm not even smart enough to know anyone who's smart enough to know. After all, once upon a time, the Supreme Court itself kind of punted on this question. But thankfully, in the case of this new right-wing gold rush for banning things, we need not contemplate such troublesome and ambiguous things. No, we're talking about mainstream books, books that have important messages about incredibly important topics that seem to discomfort a lot of white people and a lot of straight people and a lot of religious fundamentalists. During the height of BLM protests, a white couple defaced a municipally produced BLM mural in Martinez, California. One of the most striking aspects of this event was that, while these two were foolishly filming their act of vandalism, one of them, David Nelson, was yelling this, quote, We're sick of this narrative. That's what's wrong. The narrative of police brutality. The narrative of oppression. The narrative of racism. It's a lie. There's no oppression. There's no racism. It's a leftist lie. It's a lie from the media, the liberal left. Unquote. I well remember reading this with my mouth agape, thinking, can anyone really believe that racism doesn't exist in America? Really? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. Apparently, some people need to believe this fervently, all evidence to the contrary. They, like climate change deniers, are not relying on evidence, they're simply choosing belief over facts. That couple was booked on charges of vandalism, but there was talk of hate crime charges. Personally, I am not even remotely comfortable with the entire concept of hate crimes when applied to speech, unless, of course, that speech contains direct and unambiguous calls for violence. As I said before, you can put up a sign on your lawn frothing about white devils or kikes or the obvious word for black people, and I think you've got the right, as long as that sign does not directly call for violence. I believe people have the right to be assholes, to be offensive, and to even say racist, homophobic, and sexist things. The alternative is someone, or some group of someones, deciding for the rest of us just what it is we can and cannot say based on what they deem offensive. No thank you. We're close enough to Orwell's 1984 as it is. But that couple surely did commit a crime called vandalism, and they surely went to court for it. In the grand scheme of things, their crime in and of itself was small. After all, it was easy enough to repaint the pavement. What was more important for me was that it educated me on the level of denial that many white people carry about racism. Now, that fervent denial, and denial around other topics like the abuse of gay and trans people and the genocide of Native Americans, has metastasized, and it's getting books pulled from curricula and even more ominously from libraries. I want to stress that I'm not against changing curricula. Times change. Cultures change. The book To Kill a Mockingbird speaks of the experience of racism through the eyes of a young white girl, hardly as germane or powerful as a book told from a black perspective. So sure, replace it in the curricula with something better and more current, but don't ban it and pull it from the library. Many people on the left as well as the right want to disappear books the way the mafia used to disappear people. They want these books killed off, buried deep, never to be heard from again. Luckily, this censorious impulse often has a contradictory effect. 
the recent uproar over mouse has in fact caused its sales to skyrocket. But the censorious pendulum powered from the right wing's own hysterical identity politics outrage machine is also affecting teachers and academics drastically. It's not just books being banned, but entire subjects. Our reading of some of the laws recently passed, as well as others under consideration, could lead one to believe that teaching virtually anything about anything at all may become impossible. The ban caused school librarians to pull books from shelves and is creating real fear among educators. I have to now, with this resource ban, think twice about whether or not I should or could use a James Baldwin quote as an opening for my class. There are teachers looking over their shoulders, wondering if someone's gonna be at their door, darkening their door, that you said something or you mentioned something or you used something that you were not supposed to. The irony is that all we've heard for years from the likes of Tucker Carlson is that liberals are oh-so-delicate snowflakes, that they can't take the heat, the febrile stew of the open and unregulated public discourse, the free market of ideas, blah, blah, blah. And yet, what is the basis of most of the new laws attacking the teaching of even basic American history? A history that is, yes, replete with both state-sponsored and civilian-generated genocide, racism, homophobia, and enslavement? The basis behind the new orgy of right-wing attempts and successes at limiting speech and knowledge is stated plainly in much of the new curriculum-limiting legislation. And it is, in effect, nothing more than a flat-out open admission of stunning fragility. The gist of many of these laws is that these curricula and books are making some white folks and some straight folks and some Christians feel uncomfortable. So we must ban them. Delicate sensibilities are at risk here. Children might learn that really bad shit was done to black people and other people of color and gay people and the Italians and Irish and Jews by white people, mostly Protestant white people. And to a lesser extent, at least in terms of scale, really bad shit is still being done to a lot of people by white supremacy. Even though these laws cover areas from gay and trans rights to the genocide of multiple ethnic and racial groups, I'm going to stick to white-on-black racism here. Partially because it's too hard to include everyone in every sentence, and partially because white denial over black genocide seems the most energizing wellspring of the current right-wing banning frenzy. But my argument also stands for the rest of the history of America's bigoted injustices. My argument also covers books that one might find critical of Native Americans and black people, science and history books about Native American cannibalism, conquest and land theft by competing tribes, and tribal enslavement of other tribes, and books about the horrific imperialist reign of terror the Zulus perpetuated against other black African tribes before white colonists ever set foot on, let alone despoiled, sub-Saharan Africa. I want it all uncensored. But many of these laws sprouting up like toadstools are quite unequivocal. Nothing can be taught that can possibly make someone uncomfortable about their race or ethnicity or religion. And that apparently includes any history that may include bad things their race and or ethnicity and or religious group did in the past. How can you teach anything if you can't cover uncomfortable material? It's ludicrous, and it sounds precisely like a black student whimpering that the presence of the N-word in a book is going to do them grievous and irreparable harm requiring years of trauma therapy. 
On the left, this performative fragility has become a kind of kabuki, a ritual display of outrage and victimhood that must be played out whenever anyone says anything someone doesn't like. But now, once again, the right wing makes parodying even something that silly on the left impossible. For as absurd as such performances are to me, it's way more absurd for white Christians to be playing this fragility game. But they are. My, oh my, they wring their hands in anguish. We can't teach the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow. We can't teach about the violence and murder of the civil rights era. We can't teach about the heroism of so many black activists either, or how the Black Panthers helped the black community immensely before the FBI and local law enforcement basically assassinated and jailed them out of existence. Clearly, these new, oh-so-white snowflakes don't want our kids to know any real American history, or to think for themselves. So, quite ridiculously, they're now competing as hard as they can with the left to be the most pathetically delicate of all. Anything that disrupts their need to believe that racism doesn't exist, and either never existed or was, oh, I don't know, kinda, sorta, maybe ever so slightly unpleasant for black people in some remote part of the past, has gotta go. It's just too upsetting. There's an old Jewish joke about the perfect definition of chutzpah, or if you prefer, temerity. A man has killed both of his parents. While on trial for their murder, he begs the court to show leniency because he's now an orphan. Now that's chutzpah. But I propose a new definition. White people weeping that they're somehow a new kind of persecuted minority, even though they're still the majority and quite clearly still in power. The demonically clever part of the new right-wing book-banning orgy is that it apes the fragility burlesque of the left so perfectly that it's like one long evil trolling exercise. Because a book like This Is Your Time by the courageous Ruby Bridges is being censored for racism because within its pages it's describing, wait for it, racism. Projection and inversion are stock tools of much of the GOP and of all demagogues. They always ascribe their own evils on those they oppose. But this one, this one takes the cake. This censorious instinct and this entire fragility mess from hard left to hard right is based on a fundamental misapprehension of what education really should be about. Education is not for making you feel comfortable and satisfied in your already held beliefs. It's for challenging them. It's for giving you enough information to start questioning the things you were taught by your family, by your church, by your peer group. Fearless, difficult, often uncomfortable inquiry is the heart of true education. You don't go to college for easy answers, or you shouldn't. You go to college to have your mind expanded and your assumptions questioned, shaken, and maybe at times demolished. But of course, what many of the more authoritarian bent on the left and the right want is not inquiry. It's inculcation. They want pliable people who believe what they want them to believe, who believe what they're told. Blind followers, not free thinkers. But even though that's true on the left and on the right, it's the right that's on fire right now, involved in an almost Stalinist purging of our libraries and classrooms and the butchering of curricula. So what's going on here? Why this frenzy? Why is there so much fear around Americans actually knowing their true history? Perhaps because American history is sometimes truly almost incomprehensibly horrific 
And of course, the ruling ethno-religious group is responsible for most, though by no means all, of that horror. It's a fact that from before Reconstruction to at least the 1950s, white Americans went, by the thousands, to lynchings. Well less than 100 years ago, whites took their entire families, including young children, to these festive celebrations of torture, murder, and dismemberment. Some of the crowds numbered over 10,000 people. They quite literally had picnics while black men were barbarically tortured and murdered in front of them. They took body parts as souvenirs and posed for and bought commemorative postcards. This shit is almost incomprehensible to me, but it's indisputable. There is far too much photographic evidence, including those postcards, and far too many newspaper articles filled with glowing eyewitness testimony from white people crowing their support for torture and murder. No one seriously interested in American history can deny these things. And of course, farther back in time during slavery, black men, women, and children were raped wholesale and murdered for sport or as object lessons. Families were torn apart, each member sold to the highest bidder. People were literally starved and worked to death. Torture was institutionalized to such an extent that in Charleston, South Carolina, there was at least one business that would beat your unruly slaves for you if you lacked the time, physical stamina, or stomach to do it yourself. These are facts, and I think most white Americans are quite happy to be willfully ignorant of them. They might be dumbfounded, and some of them shocked, saddened, and hopefully appalled if faced with them. But the reasons stated behind so much of the curriculum evisceration legislation and book banning is one I don't understand. That if white folks are exposed to the crimes of other whites, they will feel unbearable shame. I don't want my daughter growing up feeling guilty because she's white. But need they feel ashamed? I don't think so. And my family history is enmeshed with slavery and probably with Native American genocide as well. On my father's side, we go back to 1620, to Jamestown, where my first American ancestor, William Claiborne, was without a doubt a white supremacist, as were virtually all Europeans of his time. I have slave owners on that side of the family, and many in that branch of my family tree fought for the Confederacy. But I did not do these things, so no, I feel no shame. Very close to home, my father's mother, Virginia Claiborne, who lived in Richmond, Virginia, supported desegregation in the 1960s and lost most of her friends in the process, a tale I'll tell in another episode. But while I admire my grandma for her gutsy stance, I take no personal pride in it because I had nothing to do with it. My mother's side of the family were Jewish refugees from Lithuania who'd suffered torture, rape, land theft, and wholesale murder as part of centuries of anti-Semitic pogroms, what I call the slow-motion Holocaust. They overcame all of that and came to America with nothing and created a decent life for themselves and their children through incredibly hard work. I refuse to feel like a victim for what they suffered or to feel pride in their later accomplishments because I wasn't there. But clearly, there are many white people who, for emotional reasons, cannot, will not, face America's grim history of racial subjugation, torture, and enslavement because they do feel pride for their forebears. They're emotionally invested in this white pride, and it's an absurdly inflated pride at that because it relies on the fiction that their ancestors and fellow white brethren built America all by their lonesome and that the millions of slaves, imported Chinese labor, etc., had nothing to do with the founding and building of this country. 
As America moves towards becoming a minority-majority country, some excessively tribal white people who identify more with their whiteness than with their shared humanity with others are apparently terrified, at least unconsciously, of losing faith in their ethno-nationalist myth. So given that so many right-wing folks seem terrified of facing the facts about how horrific slavery was and how horrific racism still is, my question is, how do we change hearts and minds? The answer has to be by engaging people's empathy. This clearly only works with some people. I'm not naive enough to think we're all going to sing Kumbaya anytime soon. Yet while I am quite positive that there were plenty of white racists who felt overjoyed while they watched clubs and dogs unleashed on black demonstrators on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, the dignity of the black demonstrators, contrasted with the brutal, feral ferocity of the rioting white authorities and citizenry, did engender empathy in some white people, a lot of white people. Scenes of white barbarity being visited upon studiously calm and manifestly nonviolent black people probably did more to advance civil rights in this country than anything else. This also happened during the Vietnam War. Yes, more and more Americans were coming home from the war in body bags, and that's part of why more and more Americans were turning against the war. But Vietnam was also the first war to be televised. People were seeing napalmed children and summary executions in the streets of Saigon, graphically displayed on their TV screens while they tried to eat their dinner. Many people, including many white people who might have considered Asians inferior to themselves, became emotionally engaged because of this televising of the cruelty, torture, and war crimes that America and her puppet South Vietnamese government were committing against these others half a world away. None of us likes to face facts we find unpleasant, and white America seems to have a large proportion of people who'll do almost anything, including abrogate the Constitution, to avoid facing our unpleasant past and our present, which is still rife with white racism, white privilege, and needless institutional hurdles that people of color still struggle to overcome on a daily basis. The war on drugs and our culture of mass incarceration and concomitant electoral disenfranchisement being chief among many. These white people seem to need to feel superior, and many will never give up their myth of superiority, a myth that animates them and is central to the core of their identity. It's a fragile, hollow core to be sure, one built on multitudes of lies, but no matter People are people, and in the main, facts aren't going to sway them, not when their mythology makes them feel so very special. This kind of intra-tribal narcissistic reinforcement, the flattering tales tribes tell about themselves, whether they be ethnic, religious, or national tribes, or the MAGA crowd, are incredibly durable and resistant to reason. Not that these white people are actually saying these things. Rather, their protestations against books and curricula that threaten the mythological foundations of white supremacy are based on absurd and disingenuous complaints about sex and violence in many of these books. Fairfax County back in the spotlight tonight over two controversial books that parents have been fighting to have removed from school libraries. Now, the books are at the center of a holiday display at a public library that has people divided. Fox 5's Jacqueline Matter live tonight in McLean with more. Jacqueline. Hey, Jim, parents are upset that this holiday reading display here at Dolly Madison Library featured two books that contain pedophilia and obscene images all right alongside the Holy Bible. 
Three months after the initial call to remove certain LGBTQIA books from school libraries, parents and activists are back at it again. A week after a review found that neither book in question referenced pedophilia. But any thinking person knows that this argument is bullshit. I'm not the first to point out that the average white supremacist's favorite book, the Bible, is full of sex, including incest, and violence, including rape, torture, and genocide. As things become more polarized, more tribal here in the USA than I can ever remember, we're in real danger of shattering into a balkanized mess of ethnic and other identity-based hatreds and low-intensity conflicts. The democratic experiment, the American experiment, the West's enlightenment experiment with free thought, all of these appear to me to be on life support in this dark age. But some people enmeshed in bigotry and chauvinism do grow out of it. Surprisingly, to me anyway, people do change. So how do we encourage tolerance for divergent ideas and opinions? I know we don't do it by yelling at people, and I know we don't do it by burning down buildings either. We need to spark a non-violent revolution, an evolutionary leap in humans. We as a species must become supra-tribal, which is ironically the exact opposite of what social media and identity politics on the left and on the right are engendering. We must learn to value our shared humanity over any tribal loyalties of color, creed, gender, sexual orientation, and all the rest. Identifying more as white or black, straight or gay, male or female, Christian or Muslim, than as human is the problem. There really is one race, the human race, and we're going to have to evolve beyond tribalism and tribal narcissistic reinforcement, or we're going to perish as a species. We must learn to judge each human being as a unique individual, based on their merits or lack thereof. We must learn more compassion for those who can disagree with us in a civil manner. The survival of America, and eventually of the entire human species, is at stake. So how will we accomplish this? How can we foster more empathy, more civil dialogue, and less tribalism and intolerance? There are techniques and theories galore, from nonviolent communication to cognitive behavioral therapy, and I hope to interview people on these and other modalities. But I want to hear from you, too. I'm inviting you to email me your suggestions at cognitivedissidentinfo at gmail.com. That's cognitivedissidentinfo at gmail.com. All I ask is that you be civil. If I feel you're onto something, I may even ask to interview you. I am searching for answers here that engage both the intellect and the heart, because I fervently believe that both must be engaged to create change. In the meantime, please fight censorship from any quarter, especially for the rights of people you strenuously disagree with. This is an especially good muscle to exercise, the fight for the freedom of expression of people whose opinions you may detest. This is the acid test of your own commitment to free thought and free speech. It's really where the rubber meets the road, and I hope to find you on that road, beside me, in mixed, restive, and sometimes disagreeable company. Thanks again for listening, and as always, be good to your neighbor and maybe make them some homemade baklava or kugel, borscht or fried chicken, curry goat or shumai.
The music for today's episode comes from the CD Stranger Than Truth by the electroacoustic duo Loons in the Monastery, of which I comprised one half, playing guitar and viola and singing and all kinds of ethnic and very weird homemade instruments. The other half of that duo, the incredible synthesist Jennifer Lohman, passed away this year. And I thought as a tribute to Jen, I would include what I think is the most beautiful piece of music we ever recorded. It's called Archangel, and it is also from that CD. I hope you enjoy it.
The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media.